Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Okay, before we get started, we will have a couple of moments of silent prayer, and I think that I just got a hand signal that the uh, uh, it's December the 13th that we're having the uh, uh, Christmas dinner here at the church following the morning service. Uh, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that they are in right relationship with the Lord and with God the Holy Spirit. We walk by the Spirit and not according to the flesh, and we're to put to death the deeds of the flesh. But when we sin, we are to, we're to confess that sin, and we're instantly forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's so wonderful that we had the opportunity to come before your throne of grace. As we watch the news every day, as we uh, hear what goes on in, uh, in and around our homes and in this large city and just around the country and the world, we see a world that seems to, to be more out of control, more chaotic than we've ever seen. And yet we know that this presents opportunities perhaps for us, opportunities to witness, opportunities to share the gospel and help others understand it, opportunities not to go on the mission field because the mission field is coming to us and uh, be willing and ready and available to uh, talk to people, be involved in, in communicating to these that are coming to this country uh, about the gospel. That's the only hope. And, Father, we need to have a heart for evangelism. Father, we're thankful that we can trust you. And in this election time, we pray for leaders who are insightful, leaders who understand the truth of these issues, leaders who are willing to take the strong but accurate and necessary steps to protect this nation so that we can be strong and secure. For without strong, secure borders, you cannot have a strong, secure nation at all. And the only way to secure the nation is to uh, is to stop the incoming traffic, to stand firm. And, Father, we pray that uh, we would have leaders who recognize the importance of nationalism and national identity. Father, we pray for us that we might focus on our spiritual life because when we hear these things, it's easy to become discouraged. There's some who become uh, far more than discouraged. They become de- uh, depressed. They become uh, may give in to hope, hopelessness, but yet we know that you are the God of hope and you are the God who strengthens us and you are the God who is going to provide the solution to the problems and that we need to keep our eyes on you and not on circumstances. And as we study tonight, we pray that we might uh, learn even more about how we live our Christian life from uh, Peter. In Christ's name, amen. 
Now, Peter is talking about the spiritual life. This whole epistle is about how we live the spiritual life in the midst of opposition, in the midst of adversity, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of what may be just personal uh, personal persecution, hostility, animosity, and that can take a variety of different forms. It can be on the official level, or it can be just on the, the, the individual level. And we not only face opposition from the, the world around us, we face opposition from culture, we face opposition, and th- this is nothing new for Christians. I think it's a shock to a lot of evangelicals, and evangelicals respond with, 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 uh, uh, depression, discouragement, uh, decisions that are made by the Supreme Court, decisions that are made by governors and presidents and, and mayors are, are, are quite disheartening. But we, but we're that way because for the last, 400 years in this country, we have a tradition of of supporting Christianity and basing our decisions based on the Bible, and that's gone. And and we don't know what it is to live in a world where the Bible is considered um, hostile to culture, hostile to advance, hostile to where where civilization is going. But now we're living in that kind of a culture. And most Christians just haven't adjusted to the fact that we're living in a significant, not, not just a post-Christian environment, but an anti-Christian in- environment. And it's difficult for us to, to, to make that adjustment. Uh, but we need to. This has been the norm throughout 2,000 years of church history. And we've lived in this kind of historical bubble uh, for 400 years, and that bubble has now burst. So there are a lot of good lessons here in Peter. But not only do we face the hostility and the animosity from the world around us, but from our own sin nature, which has uh, tendrils that go out into every aspect of our life and every aspect of, of, of our thinking, our attitudes, our emotions. And one of the things that so many people struggle with, I think, today, or at least they're diagnosed that way and they think that's their problem, is depression. And it's highly, in my opinion is, it's highly over-medicated. There are articles that support that. There was an article I read just in the last month that suggested that over 90% of people who are taking antidepressant medications are not medically qualified to receive them. Now, that's astounding. And that has a, a significant impact on people's thinking and on their brain chemistry. And it re- causes a rewiring of things. And, and a lot of people in modern times, I would say in the, in, in the era of modern psychology and modern psychi- psychiatric medication, have assumed that de- depression is something that, that maybe if you just have a mild case of the blues, that, that, that maybe the Bible can kind of help. But, if you're really seriously depressed, you need to you need to go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist in order to get help. And there may be some extreme cases that are related to certain um, biological uh, chemical realities that need to be addressed. But most people think that that if they're just kind of down for more than two or three days, that that's not normal, and they need some kind of so, something to. Uh, to help that, but I want to read to you. Uh, I, I I read a enjoy reading a book that that uh, it's written by a guy by the name of Robert J. Morgan. It's called On This Day, and it's a it's one of these little daily devotionals. 
and it's made up of different historical events, and I love reading it. And he's got some, several other books that he's written. The guy's done a great job of this. But I just thought I would read this. This was the, the entry for October 19th uh, in, in that book. And I thought it opens up an insight because a lot of people don't talk about these things, and I'm sure this wasn't something that was talked about from the pulpit at the time. It's about Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, if you don't know, was considered the, the greatest preacher in Victorian England, and his church was the largest church in, in London and in England in the, from about the 1850s to the 1880s. I believe he died sometime in the 1880s. And this, his church and his preaching provided a, a good bit of the biblical truth foundation for, uh, Victorian England and for the, the, the tremendous, uh, spiritual strength of that nation. Now he was a strong five point Calvinist. And there were some other areas of his theology we might uh, have some some contentions with, but he did proclaim the gospel. And according to this this article, quotes Spurgeon. Spurgeon also wrote a book called Lectures to My Students, and this probably comes this quote probably comes from from that book. He says, "Quote fits of depression come over most of us." Charles Spurgeon once told his students. The strong are not always vigorous. The joyous are not always happy. Spurgeon himself was living proof, for he often suffered agonizing periods of depression. He would go into these bouts of depression that would last for weeks and months, where his life was just in a black cloud. And here's one of the greatest pastors and preachers and believers in in England. And how did he handle it? He handled it with the truth of God's word. But this is one of the instances. It's, it's uh, this author says it's one of the worst bouts that he had. He was 22 years of age, and he was just an up uh, up and coming pastor. His congregation had outgrown its building, so they had rented the Royal Surrey Gardens Music Hall, which was the largest and most beautiful building. In, in London for his Sunday night services. And Surrey Hall usually accommodated secular, all kinds of secular entertainment from carnival circuses and concerts. And, uh, it was quite a shock for a lot of Christians that they would use that to meet for, for the worship of the Lord. But on Sunday morning, uh, October the 19th, 1856, Spurgeon preached at his New Park Street Chapel saying, I may be called to stand where the thunderbolts brew, where the lightnings play and the tempestuous winds are howling on the mountaintop. Well then, amidst dangers, he will inspire me with courage. Amidst toils, he will make me strong. We shall be gathered together tonight where an unprecedented mass of people will assemble, perhaps from idle curiosity, to hear God's word, to see what God can do. Just when a cloud is falling on the head of him whom God raised up to preach you. See, he's talking about this fact that he's mired in this deep, dark depression. Well, that night, 12,000 people came to hear him at Surrey Hall, and there were additional 10,000 people overflowing into the uh, surrounding gardens. And as Spurgeon got up to begin to preach, somebody in the audience yelled out, Fire! The galleries are giving way. 
and there, but there was no fire. The crowd bolted in panic, and in the resulting stampede, seven people were trampled to death, and 28 more people were hospitalized. And, you know, he was just so overcome with depression. He's, he was carried from the pulpit to a friend's house where he remained in seclusion for weeks afterwards, and all because of this particular uh, particular event, and he said it was like a box of knives were cutting into his heart every day. But his solution was to immerse himself in the Word of God and just to think about it every single day, and that was what finally brought him out of his depression. And see, that is what I've been talking about the last few weeks. Unfortunately, in our busy lives, we rarely have the time to do what we need to do spiritually just in terms of our own immersion in the Word. And then we also have people say, well, if I read it, I won't understand it. How many times have you heard that? I read it, but I don't understand it. Well, let me guarantee you one thing. Pay attention to this. If you don't read it, you will never understand it. Okay? So you have to start somewhere, and most of us didn't really understand it very much when we started, but it's one of those things that you have to grow through. You just have to read it and read it and read it, and, and over time you will come to understand it. But it is God's Word that has power. It's the Word of God that's alive and powerful. And it's not the Word of the pastor that's alive and powerful. Okay, It's not the Word of the theologian. It's not Lewis Berry Chafer's systematic theology that's alive and powerful. It's the Word of God that's alive and powerful. And God the Holy Spirit uses His Word uh, to challenge us. And so this is what, what people did, what Christians did over the centuries, and this is how they learned to trust God to handle the situations in, in their life. So this is what we're talking about, what I've been on for the last couple of lessons Deliverance in adversity and prosperity. So we're going to wrap up this, this section here in 1 Peter 1, 7-9 tonight. And just a reminder of this long section, it's talking about testing, that we are to greatly rejoice, if need be, when we've been grieved by various trials. And I'll tell you, the trials that grieve us the most are not the really big trials. They sometimes do. It's the little ones, the little aggravations that pile up. Yesterday morning I woke up and I... I I said, I'm going to quit teaching on uh, testing and adversity. I'm going to become a motivational speaker. And we're going to just talk about the love of God every single week. That's all we're going to do. And we're going to talk about how wonderful God is and that we need to reach our full potential. Right? No, probably not. Yesterday morning, I got up, had a very busy day. I was going to come down and record a lesson on First Thessalonians. I had uh, all kinds of things I needed to get done. It was one of those days where, where every 15 minutes was regimented and segmented. And the first thing I heard from my wife before I even got out of bed or she got out of bed, oh, I forgot to tell you last night that I, I turned the faucet on the sink, and it's leaking right where it joins the, the drain board, the countertop. I said, okay, well, I'll go look at it. Well, after doing that and then 
sending a little video of that to Bryce and having a little discussion, it was determined that this was a serious problem and that was going to have to go away. So Wednesdays are a busy day, so we I just immediately canceled most everything or rescheduled it to other days and blew it off. And, and so in between different things, we had to – fortunately, Bryce was coming over yesterday morning, and, and he, um, he took it off, and I learned how to take it off so I could learn how to put one on. And then we had to find time in the afternoon to go buy a new one. And husbands, never go buy a faucet without your wife. Let her pick it out. Okay, that's just a lesson you learn in life. It's, it's wisdom. You know, don't do it yourself. That's, that's foolish. You, you take your wife and let her pick it out. And so by the time we had time to do that, it's already late and we had some other plans that we had to do. So it was this morning before I got a chance to crawl under the sink and, um, and put that thing back together. And so it just a domino. And then there were about three or four other little things that happened yesterday. That were all just just piled on like that, and and you you just have you just have to learn to sort of roll with that and 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 trust the Lord, and this is the way it's going to be. Whatever it was, it, obviously not that important, perhaps. So we're going to start learning positive things now, right? No, we go through tests, and they they dem, they uh, demonstrate the quality of our faith or the lack of it. Sometimes think about some of the tests when I went through Abraham, and I, one of the ways I structured Abraham was Abraham went through uh, ten or eleven tests that God took him through to, to teach him to mature. And the very first one that comes after his promise that he's going to give him the land when he came down to Shechem or Shechem, and he built an altar and he worshipped the Lord there. The Lord said, "Abraham, I'm going to give you this land." So he made a promise, and then, Abra- then he's going to test Abraham to see if if Abraham's going to go- going to um, going to obey him. He told him, he said, "This is the land that I'm going to give to you. This is where you are to live." And so then a famine came, and what did Abraham do? Instead of trusting God to provide for him in the land, he went off to Egypt, and he got into trouble there because he he picked up a. Uh, a, a slave girl that later became his concubine, Hagar, and through Hagar he gave birth to Ishmael at the insistence of his wife Sarah. And so now throughout all of history we've had this battle between the Arabs and is and the Jews, the descendants of Ishmael versus the descendants of, of, of Isaac. So he failed that test. That, that was a test, and it exposed his failure because there wasn't much quality there. But the purpose of a test, based on the Greek word used here, is to expose the quality of our faith unless there's not any that's there. And that as we grow, the quality of that faith as it grows and matures is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. And its goal is to be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Christ. So we've been talking about how to rejoice in what we do and how we use the spiritual skills that God has given us so that we can rejoice in the midst of the present fiery trials. And it's based on the Word of God and the Spirit of God. We've gone over this quite a bit. So we went through the doctrine of suffering for blessing, and I'm just going to go through this fairly quick so that all of our thinking comes back to where we were. We looked at the first point that every believer goes through tests. Every day we go through tests. We go little through little tests. We go through big tests. We go tests. We go through all kinds of variety of tests, and some of the tests have tests within them. And it's how God 
causes us to, to grow. So we hit these tests of doctrine. This is our blueprint chart. We either are going to be positive or negative. We go, when we're walking by the Spirit, we live in the midst of this cycle where we experience the abundance of life. And as we do, our life gives evidence of the quality and the justice of a loving God and His plan. And it leads to maturity. But when we fail to apply doctrine, it leads to sin, human good, and temporal death, which is a death-like existence. We're living like we're spiritually dead, though we are spiritually alive. It leads to spiritual weakness and instability, and it can lead to spiritual regression and a hardened heart. And eventually, at the end of life, uh, when we're face-to-face with the Lord and after the rapture, there'll be the judgment seat of Christ, and we'll either see rewards and an inheritance at that point, or we will lose rewards, and there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. And this is real. So God takes us through a training program which utilizes adversity as well as prosperity to teach us to use these spiritual skills, something we need to practice and practice and practice. I talked about this last time. We go through these stages of growth. These are the uh, ten spiritual skills here, and we learn to, to, to implement them through practice so that we drill ourselves, we become disciplined. Last time I talked about the importance of being mentally focused and studies that show that when you're people who are mentally focused, not counting the spiritual realities, just in everyday life, people who learn to be disciplined, to focus, to, to, to meditate, whatever that means for the world, it's not biblical meditation, that, that that has a positive benefit of stabilizing them and can even lead to overcoming depression. And I quoted from some, uh, from a book that came out uh, recently, uh, the findings of their, their particular studies. But when it comes to the spiritual life, we go far and above that. We go far beyond that because our spiritual life is empowered by God the Holy Spirit who is producing a level of maturity within us and stability that goes beyond any kind of normal everyday happiness or joy or peace or stability. And then I developed this little diagram that we talk about the human soul, which is comprised of about four four areas, our self-consciousness, our mentality, our conscience, and volition. And this was a new diagram, so I wanted to go through this again. That soul is the real you. But it doesn't ever exist without a body. Isn't that interesting? In the Middle Ages, uh, due to the influence of, of Aristotelian philosophy, there was a lot that was written and discussed about how the soul interacts with the body. And it was all philosophical and doesn't give us a whole lot of illumination because uh, their concept of science was so Aristotelian at the time, and it was flawed in terms of a lot of its presuppositions. But they understood that, that and, and the Christians who were involved in this, the Christian theologians, understood that the soul is immortal. It will always exist. It doesn't go out of existence. And that the soul functions, it's immaterial, but it functions within a material brain, and that we can never understand how that which is immaterial interacts and interfaces with with a the, the matter of the brain, but it does. And it's what goes on in the soul that affects the chemistry of the brain 
And later on, the chemistry of the brain may have a backwash effect, but ultimately, the ultimate determiner in our lives is our volition and where we're, how we're going to focus our thinking. I focused on that last time. Wrapped up just looking at a couple of verses to remind us where we ended. Philippians 4, 8, where Paul tells us this is what you mentally focus on every day. Things that are true. You focus on the truth. One of the great benefits that you can get, because I, I look around this congregation, and I know a lot of people, not everybody, because we have thousands probably that live stream or listen, but I know from looking at y'all that a lot of you are news junkies. You are in the image of your pastor. We like to get up in the morning, and we go to Drudge Report, and we go to Breitbart, and we go to Politico, and we go to all these different sites. Uh, we go to the Jerusalem Report, all these different – we want to know what's going on in the world. But if you take that time and you focus your thinking on the Word of God every morning, then then what happens is that begins to impact how you look at the world every day rather than waking up and seeing all that garbage and all that bad news and letting that shape your thinking. You need to focus on things that are true, not on all the garbage in the current events. Whatever things are noble, let me suggest that about 99.9% of what is we look at on the news and keeping up to date with current events has nothing to do with either truth or nobility. And yet we spend way too much time focusing on that rather than the truth of God's word. Whatever things are just, that is, consistent with God's integrity, his righteousness, to chaos. Whatever things are pure, that is, morally unstained. That means you're not going to spend your time watching all those little gossip shows and sitting around see what the girls on The View have to think this week or what uh, some of those other talk shows in the morning. Um, the gossip about whoever was married, not married, living with whoever, whatever. Whatever things are lovely, that is, things that are acceptable and pleasing to God. Whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, which means moral excellence, and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And that word for meditate is this verb down there, logizomai, which means to reason, to think through, to mentally take something apart and put it back together really to focus on those those particular things. Romans 8, 5, Paul said, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That should be true of us. This is just basic mental attitude dynamics, if that phrase means anything to some of you. Set your mind on things above and not on the things on the earth. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't keep up with these things because they impact and relate to our professions and our jobs, our careers. But we need to make sure that what wraps around everything else that we're doing is is being immersed in the Word of God. So that's just review. And I've pointed this out, that of those spiritual skills, joy is emphasized in 1 Peter 1, 6-9, faith in terms of what we believe, our doctrinal orientation is emphasized here, our love for Christ, our focus upon him. And at the end, we see that it's translated believing, but it is it should be translated as an instrumental 
a participle there that it is by believing. This is the key uh, to the Christian life is trust. It is the faith rest drill and that we are believing what the Word of God says. We are trusting it, we're claiming those promises, and we are mixing our faith faith with Christ. Verse 8 says, Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet by believing you rejoice. Rejoice is a result of the faith rest drill. That's why when when I structure this logically, the first thing we have to learn how to do is trust God, the faith rest drill, because everything else gets built on that, mastering that particular skill. We looked at the third point, which is that God trains us through various situations to teach us to respond biblically. Now, we can respond to the training or not. It's our choice. Fourth, a skill is something that's mastered through constant repetition and practice, but only perfect practice makes perfect. I covered this two lessons back, and we went through the first seven points, so I'm just reviewing these very briefly. A skill is something that's practice, and we have to practice, discipline ourselves to do this over and over again. That's part of our volition. Fifth, we have two options. Either we walk by the Spirit and apply the teaching of Scripture, or we opt for the sin nature, one or the other. This is lost in the most teaching on spirituality today. Most, uh, most people teach you can be a little bit of both. But the Scripture is true. You either walk by the Spirit or you walk by the flesh. Galatians 5, 16 and following, and Romans chapter 8. So we have these two options. And then if you remember, I went through all these passages connecting these things together. Walking according to the sin nature in Galatians 5, 16 is called, is called walking... Uh, walking by, it's called walking by the sin nature there, walking according to the sin nature in Romans 8 4. It's called walking in darkness, 1 John 1 6 2, and 2 11. Walking according to our lusts in 2 Peter 3 3 or Jude 16. In contrast to that, we have all those passages that talk about walking in the light, abiding in Christ, abiding in the light, walking in the truth, walking by the Spirit, walking according to the Spirit, and living according to the Spirit. And those phrases, are used in, they're surrounded by synonyms that connect all those concepts together, so they're virtually synonymous. Now, getting into new territory. A test, as I've said before, is a test of doctrine in your soul. If you're not spending time in the Word, then there's no doctrine in your soul. And therefore, the test is you're going to be like Abraham in in, in Genesis chapter 12, when God takes him through that first test and he just blows it completely because he hasn't learned to trust God yet. He hasn't focused on who God is, is the God who's given him a promise and who's going to carry it out and will be able to sustain him. It took, it took him from that time when he was about uh, 70 years of age until Genesis chapter 22 for him to really get what God meant by those promises. And over that period of time, he's, it's 30 years before he, gives, he, he and Sarah have, have Isaac. And so it's another probably 20 or 30 years before that event in Genesis 22, and he takes Isaac to um, Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. So, so 40 or 50 years goes by before he, he really gets it. And as he goes along, he gets it more and more, but it takes time. Eighth point is that tests are designed to expose our flaws, 
but primarily to reveal our obedience. God's more concerned about developing us and presenting what's positive than the negative. And, and see, that's what comes across in so much legalism today. We have to point out sin because we live in a world of licentiousness that wants to relativize morality and relativize sin, and so people minimize it and dismiss it. But what we see in the Scripture is that God really doesn't want to just expose where we fail, but to expose where we succeed and reveal our obedience. And that's what comes out in the judgment seat of Christ. The gold, silver, and precious stone survives. That's what goes on into eternity. The garbage in our lives that we do in our own power, the wood, hay, and straw, that's what disappears. Nobody sees it. It just burns up and it's destroyed. Now we come to point nine, and in point nine what we see is an an important principle taking us back to uh, James chapter 1, verse 3, as we come to understand that process uh, of, of how we grow. He says, count it all joy. That's the command. Well, how do you do that? I really think, having studied James a lot and taught James a lot over the course of my uh, of my life and career, is that when he, when he says counted all joy, that's sort of the chief command of this whole epistle. And what he's trying to do in the rest of the epistle is to teach his readers how they can count it all joy. Because that's not simple. That doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come immediately. In fact, joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians five twenty two and 23. He says, count all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces patience. It's not really patience, it's endurance there. It's hupomone. Patience is a totally different concept. I, am, I, I got a handle on endurance, but I don't have much of a handle on patience. Uh, endurance is continuing to be obedient even when it's difficult. It's hanging in there when times get tough and when it's easier to bail out than it is to keep the path, the path of obedience. So James 1, 1, 1.3 says that testing of our faith produces endurance, and endurance is what's critical to develop maturity. That comes out in verse 4. It, le- it is Verse 4 says, let endurance have its perfect work. And the word there is teleos for growing to its intended conclusion, which is, which is maturity. When we fail, we confess sin so that we reboot. But the way John writes, John writes as if the normative Christian walks in the light and he, he doesn't need to use First John a lot. He's trying to talk about what should be normal in the Christian life, not what should be abnormal, which is spending a lot of time uh, out of fellowship. So from there, I want to go into the next little subsection in these notes when we talk about why we suffer, because suffering is related to testing, one aspect of testing. We have testing for adversity, and we have testing in prosperity, but we have to understand why we suffer. And it's, it's really simple. There are basically three points for us to understand in terms of why we have adversity. The first is because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is corrupted from the very core of the subatomic structure and the submolecular structure into the DNA of every creature 
And every living thing, there's corruption because of sin. It is profound, it's invasive, and it is very quiet. And it's, it, it appears to us to be normal. But the reality is, is that up until Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was perfect environment. That's what's supposed to be normal. Everything since then is abnormal. It's below what God intended. So we live in a fallen world. So as long as we live in a fallen world, bad things are going to happen to relatively good people. And that's what what Job and his friends needed to understand, that it didn't have anything to do with what Job did, Job's loss of his sons, Job's loss of his property, Job's loss of his wealth and his health wasn't because of anything Job did. It was because he was living in a fallen world. And because we live in a fallen world, God allows that corruption to work its way out for us. Second reason we have adversity is because we live with fallen, corrupt, sinful creatures. And they inhabit places of power in corporations and in universities and in the government, and the decisions they make impact uh, millions of people who have no say whatsoever, and it's getting to where we have less and less say as time goes on. And so these people who are the politically elite that, that, that are operating on totally fallacious ideas make decisions that impact our retirement plans, they impact our, our hopes, they impact our medical care, they impact how much it costs when we have children, it impacts uh, how much we take home in a paycheck, and all of these things are impacted because we live in a fallen world with sinful creatures, and we're associated more intimately with sinful creatures, we're married to them, and we're, we are the children of sinful creatures and we have babies and children that are sinful corrupt creatures and as such they are going to make bad decisions they're going to make awful decisions sometimes sometimes they make awful decisions because they're really giving into their sin nature and other times they just make awful decisions because it's part of being a corrupt sinful uh, creature and we sometimes just make really really bad decisions that are, are devastating not only to ourselves but to those around us. And so when we live in close proximity, then we have those problems. Somebody once asked me, and twice I've had this conversation this week, so that's why I'm bringing it up, if I believe there's a right person for every every person to marry, one right person, and I don't. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere at all. And when you are living in close intimacy with somebody who's walking with the Spirit and you're walking with the Spirit, I found you can get along with anybody, and you can have incredible rapport. And some people, you can have better rapport than others. And there are some people with whom I have had great rapport, but because of their sin nature and their living in carnality, I can't have rapport with those people at all. But if they were walking with the Lord, I would have a closer friendship and a closer relationship with them than I might have with anybody else. So the problem that happens in marriage is a problem of sin. You get two people who are living and walking with the Lord, and you can see see incredible things that happen. The other day, I had lunch at one of my favorite restaurants here in Houston. 
I went over to Christie's Seafood, and I've been going to Christie's Seafood since I was uh, little, since since I was a little kid. And Christie's used to be down on Main Street, and then it moved in the mid '70s. It moved out on Westheimer, and during the time that I was in seminary in the '70s, and the time that I was uh, that I was uh, later pastoring in Dallas, pastoring different places, I would frequently come into Houston. And could always find my parents. In fact, I remember when my dad turned 60, I surprised him and drove down from Dallas. And I won't tell you how short a time I drove from Dallas uh, in order to meet him and surprise him at Christie's one night. And, uh, in fact, they were such regular customers that when my when my mother died, uh, Mr. and Ms. Christie both, both came to the uh, to the service, and they didn't come uh, to my dad's because they were uh, out of town at the time. And Mr. Christie died uh, a couple of years ago, and they they have this little section, this little table inside the restaurant with articles about the history of the restaurant and the family, and there's this, a wonderful article there about how Mr. and Mrs. Christie met. Now, there are some of you who know them because you know their kids, because some of you have kids, and some people I know who are listening to me have kids who went through St. Thomas, and some of the people in this congregation taught their kids when they went through through uh, St. Thomas High School here in Houston. And um, anyway, so this story is telling about how they met. And this is a great story because this is the story of, of integrity at a human level, although I think they're, 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 they're possibly both believers. I'm not absolutely sure. But they, um, Mr. Christie was 33 years old. It was 1968, and he wanted a wife. Now, he had originally immigrated here from, from Greece, and so he went back to the homeland to find a wife. And he spotted her on a bus. He didn't know her. He spotted her, and he said, that's the woman I want to marry, and he found out who she was, and he went, and he asked her parents if he could court her, and three months later, they got married. And Ms. Christie said, I had no idea who this guy was that I was marrying. But she married him, and, and when she was younger, she had prayed to God that she would give him a man who was stable and faithful and would provide for the family and would be faithful to her and faithful to God. And she said, that's what I got. And we came back here, and he worked hard, and he built that restaurant, and they had five children. And what I'm saying is that we get this romantic idea that comes out of platonic idealism, that we've got to find this one right person. And as long as we live in a fallen world, when people are living according to the sin nature, they're not right for anybody. And it comes down to integrity. And there is human integrity and there's spiritual integrity. But people with integrity can have a profound, loving relationship, and they may not know each other until the day they get married. And I'm not talking about just knowing each other in the biblical sense of the word. They may not know anything about the other person until they get married. That's how it was in most of the Bible. You just People met not long before they got married. And that was it, and they spent a lifetime together, and the Christies had 45 wonderful years together and were deeply devoted to, to each other. It, it just, it's just a challenge. What I'm saying is that we live with sinful creatures, and so there's going to be a lot of difficult times because of suffering by association. But there's also wonderful times from 
blessing by association as well. And then we have our own fallen, corrupt nature that we have to deal with. And I don't know about you, but that get just that that's not my most pleasant thing to talk about. It's my own sin nature because we struggle with that, and we're to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So I put this chart together a while back. What happens is we hit adversity, and we may think it's unfair and unjust. We may go through areas of people testing because we have to deal with in-laws and outlaws, and we have to deal with teachers and professors and employers that are are horrible. And sometimes they will target you because... How come that screen's not working over there? I don't know. Um, I have nothing to do with that. Did I not turn it on? Has that been off the whole time? Okay, then I, it didn't come on. I pressed the button, but it didn't happen. It'll come on in a minute. So we have uh, p- people testing. We have system testing. And we have health testing, and all kinds of things can happen. I am more and more aware of how many people I hear about who are in their teens or their 20s or their 30s who are facing serious and significant health problems. And the costs of trying to solve those health problems is, is, is growing astronomical. I've heard so many stories in the last few weeks of people working for a company and we're seeing the fruit of Obamacare now, and that what's happening to their health insurance costs coming into effect, I'm seeing a lot of people nodding their head, what's going to happen to that and the way that's going to eat away at, at, at your income is, is just profound. We have weather testing. We've just had some flooding here in the Houston area not long ago. I had a bad flood back in, in, um, back in May, a Memorial Day, that flooded a lot of these neighborhoods back to the east of the church. We have financial problems that, that, that plague everybody. We live in a world where people, some people are trying to tell us that the economy's improved, and yet the purchasing power of people's dollars in the last eight years, which coincides with this presidency, but it goes back to the end of Bush's time as well, has eroded so that people have much, much less available spending money than they did eight or nine years ago. And in all of this, we experience also a loss of freedom. The issue is always volition, and we either trust the Lord and look at life through divine viewpoint and use the uh, ten problem-solving devices, or we react and we don't trust God, and we try to trust in something within the creation, which is a form of idolatry, and we develop all of our own little self-protective strategies to somehow make life work apart from God. That is idolatry. And we let the sin nature dominate through mental attitude, sin, sins of the tongue, and personal sins, and our arrogant skills. And so this is what this testing is designed to do, is to get us to learn to trust God. So when we get into suffering, we have to realize there's two categories of suffering. There's deserved suffering, and there is undeserved suffering. And the purposes for for undeserved suffering, based, I mean, excuse me, I think I got this wrong here. It was, kept changing the labels. Uh, this should be deserved suffering. The reason we have deserved suffering is pretty simple. We understand that. We know we did something wrong and we're reaping the consequences of it. And God is either taking us through something, some sort of intensified suffering, or he's just letting us reap the natural consequences of it. 
Uh, in Hosea 8-7, God is indicting Israel and said they sowed the wind and they're reaping the whirlwind. Sowing the wind is socialism and progressivism, and reaping the whirlwind is the eventual collapse that comes because of that. Socialism and progressivism have never worked, and it's not going to work now just because we're another generation and we think we're smarter. It's amazing, the arrogance of the human heart. But socialism and progressivism are as much part of the devil's thinking as as atheism and as uh, materialism and, and so many other things, Marxism. So what happens is we're going to make bad decisions and we're going to reap the consequences. Galatians 6-7 says, Don't be deceived, God's not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Now, when there's deserved suffering, for the unbeliever, a lot of times deserved suffering is a wake-up call to the need for salvation. God's trying to get their attention, that you need to, you need to find a solution to the miseries and problems of life. For the believer, deserved suffering is often God's rebuke. God uses it to rebuke us, to correct us, to remind us that we need to get confess sin and return to him and that we need to use the problem-solving skills that I've been talking about. And often it's a witness to others, both human and angels, as to how we handle suffering. Our lives are on display before the angelic hosts. So another chart. We have direct testing and, and indirect testing. I'm talking about deserved suffering here. There's direct testing, which is the result of sinful choices, and actions that we take. We just bring it on ourselves. And we make foolish choices because we're operating on human viewpoint and human good. And then God sometimes intensifies the natural consequences of our bad decisions with divine discipline. And that's when it, it really gets bad. And we call that suffering for discipline. But there's indirect testing because we live in Satan's world, the cosmic system, and there's suffering by association with fallen creatures. And then there's also suffering for growth. Uh, God takes us through a certain amount of adversity that's deserved in order to teach us. And this suffering provides evidence to the angels and to unbelievers and to other believers. We become an example for them. And that can then, if we are responding to that indirect testing correctly, lead to suffering for blessing. Now, Let's look at the last verse in this section. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, this is an important verse because this trans transitions us at the end of this, this long sentence going from 1 Peter uh, 6 down through 9. This is a long transition, but it comes to this conclusion. And the end of verse 9, he said, and in verse 9, he says, Receiving the end of your faith the salvation of your souls. And see in verse 10, how's verse 10 begin? It says, of this salvation. So we better understand what the salvation in verse 9 is because that's going to be the, the topic, the starting point for verse 10. And this is, and if we get past that into the meat of verse, uh, verse 10 and 11, talking about the prophets, we can let that shape our understanding of the verse and we may miss the point. Receiving the end of your faith. See, we're going through a process here 
a process where we're going through suffering, we're going through adversity, and we're trusting the Lord, and then what happens? We're growing and we're maturing. We're using the Word of God and, and the principles of Scripture, and we're applying that to the adversity in our life, and eventually we come out the other end. Now, some people think, well, I sure wish I could even see the light at the end of the tunnel. But someday, one day, and many somehow, we do come out at the end of the tunnel. Maybe we just go from stage one to stage two, but we come out the end of the tunnel. And we receive the, the end result. That's what this passage is talking about. The word komizo here is a word that it's a participle, and the the author... I mean, the translators don't translate the nuance of the participle, but it's it's best understood as a temporal participle and should be translated when you receive the end of your faith. So it happens at some point, eventually, when you receive the end of your faith. And the word there for receiving is a word that can mean to bring something to, to someone else, to convey something from one point to another, uh, to recover something that is owed or to re- or to get something that is owed, uh, to come into possession of something or to receive something. That's the idea here. You're finally going to come into possession of something. So it's when you receive the end of your faith, and this is the word telos. It's where we get our word related to one of the arguments for God, the teleo- teleological argument. Today they usually use... use um, a different word. They talk about the argument from design, but that's that's part of the teleological argument that that everything has a purpose, and so we go to the end or the goal or the conclusion. Okay, so we're receiving the conclusion of our period of trusting God, and what we receive at the end of going through this testing stage is the salvation of our souls. Now, it's real easy to bring a lot of bad theology to that phrase because we come out of an American institution of evangelicalism that uses the phrase saving your souls to be a a synonym for justification. Brother, are you saved? And what we mean by that is are you going to go to heaven if you trusted in Christ? But the Bible doesn't always use the word saved that way. In fact, in many places it doesn't, as we've learned so many times in this congregation. We, it talks about deliverance, and in a lot of ways it's just deliverance from temporal adversity. So what do we receive at the end of our faith? The faith in context is trusting God, believing Him, believing His promises in the midst of adversity, and we receive as the result, as the conclusion of our trusting Him, deliverance from the problem, deliverance through the adversity. And, and the word soul there isn't really talking about soul. Many times the word soul just means life. Now, here are some examples. Romans 11.33. This is a, 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 a Paul talking here related to, uh, to Israel, and he's, he's expressing uh, their, the, the view of, of Elijah who said, Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've torn down your altars, I alone am left, and they seek my life. Literally in the Greek it says they seek my soul. But soul is used to just refer to our earthly life. Matthew 2.20, arise, this is the warning from from, uh, uh, Gabriel to to Joshua, I mean to Joseph, uh, Jesus' father, when, when Herod's getting ready to try to kill all the babies 
all the infants in Bethlehem, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of... No, excuse me, this is after that. This is when they're going back to the land from Egypt. Arise, take the young child and his mother, go, go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's soul... See, what it means is they sought his life. What, what sought the young child's life or dead. John 10, 11, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. And then he, he expresses a universal principle that the shepherd gives his soul for the sheep. He gives his life for the sheep. It, it's, that's the meaning of the idiom. He gives his life for the sheep. In Philippians 2.30, Paul says, because the work of Christ, he came close to death. This is talking about Epaphroditus who almost died uh, in, in the ministry. He says he, almost, he gave his, he, 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 because of the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his soul. Now, he was regarding his soul in ministry. He was growing spiritually, but he didn't regard his life. He was willing to lose his life for the sake of ministry. So that's the meaning of the word soul is, is life. So, so in First uh, Peter 1, 9, it should be understood, this is the deliverance of your life in the midst of temporal adversity. Same thing James talks about. In James 1.21, where he says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word. He's not talking about getting saved here. He goes on to say, which is able to save your souls, but he's not talking about getting justified, because he's already said that these people are going to go to heaven. In James 1.18, he said, Of his own will he brought us, us, forth by the word of truth. That's regeneration. So in 118, and all through the epistle, he calls them my brethren, my brethren, my beloved brethren. So when he says, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls, he's not talking about getting justified. They're already justified. He's talking about this is going to be able to deliver your life in the midst of trials, which is what James is talking about. So it's using saving your souls in relation to deliverance from trials in your spiritual life, phase two. So what we've seen here is these verses from 6 through 9 really set the stage for understanding the next section and how this relates to to our, our spiritual life, and it's going to connect it in a very interesting way to the uh, Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, and we'll get into that uh, next time. All of this, by the way, is really setting us up for a some great material in the rest of this this chapter. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to be reminded that we're really to be in your word. We're to let it just soak into our souls, immerse ourselves into your word, that, that we need to think and focus and let your word just, just be the dynamic of, of, of our mentality. And therein gives we have the ability to survive the adversities of life. And, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these truths in Christ's name. Amen.